If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4. As I was preparing this text, I, I just came to a real conviction that the, there couldn't be a more um, a better text for us in this day, at this time of great need in our church, in, our, in churches, the, the greater church, the church, the body of Jesus Christ. As we are understanding and coming to grips with the enmity, the, the animosity of the world and the philosophies, man's philosophies against God. And so uh, this text is going to remind us of the kingdom of heaven and how we are to interact with these ideologies and these philosophies and the, these, these evil, this evil of this present day. So um, I'd like to just go to the word to the Lord in prayer and ask him for help as we open his word this morning. Dear Lord, we do, I do need your help. And I pray that you would give clarity and Lord, help us to understand. And, and may I, Lord, would you help me to present this in a way that is understandable, that will equip your people, that will help us in this time that we're living. And Lord, also for the furtherance of your kingdom, that you may be glorified and that you'll be um, exalted. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I want to start with a question. What do you think of when you think of the kingdom of God? What do you think of? Or what do you seek from or in the kingdom? I want to demonstrate to you this morning the priority of the kingdom for each and every one of us and provoke wonder and thanksgiving for the work of God to bring people like you and me from the kingdom of darkness into the glorious, his glorious light and life. In this day, um, there was a great Jewish anticipation for a revolution, for a king that would free the Jewish people from tyranny. But this kingdom, Jesus makes clear to us, is not of this world, is not political. But we do need this message for today. We have an opposing force. And as Paul says in Ephesians, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. You see, there is an opposing kingdom, and that's the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And all of those are one and the same. And they opposed the kingdom of God. Now when we uh, see violations to God's word, we are to speak against them. We see pressures, political pressures, to deny or abandon the word of God, such as transgender equality, 
homosexuality, wokeness, critical race theory, lying, cheating, stealing. All these are sinful and they are worldly philosophies and agendas that compromise and rebel against the laws of, and standards of holy God that He has revealed in the Scriptures. That He will also bring into judgment. We are to be thinking, understanding, and yes, confronting people. But Jesus came for something more than a political peace where we're just coexisting in this world. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the person, words, and works of Jesus. The sphere of salvation from sin's enslavement and penalty. So why did he use parables? He used understandable stories to describe the kingdom of God. And Mark gives us a selection of those parables here. And this one that I want to teach this morning, starting with verse 26 through 29, is only found in this Gospel of Mark. You see, to, to see Jesus of Nazareth as the king of the universe to, takes faith. That's the only way we can acknowledge Jesus is the king of kings. Only faith would, could, or can identify the Son of God as Jesus of Nazareth, my Savior, my friend. Just a few verses before our text, look what Jesus says when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. The point is, Jesus is saying, he's quoting from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, and he's saying they don't want to, they don't want to be forgiven. They think they're already good enough for God, and they, that is why they are rejecting, and unless they should turn and be forgiven. He said to them, and see the word turn there, repent. John had been calling for the people of Israel to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But they did not want to repent. They were rejecting God. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So Jesus spoke in this mystery, this, this understandable stories with hidden spiritual truths lest, unless people would repent. Now, was, God, was Jesus keeping people from repenting? No, not at all. Their hearts were so hard they would not repent. And so, in understanding that, we see the severity and mercy of God. The severity of God. God must judge them because they heard the truth. And they were accountable for hearing it. The severeness of God. He must judge them to be just. But He also had mercy on them. 
There was hidden truth with revealed truth. There's responsibility and accountability. This leads us to look at the context of Jesus giving these parables, and this is stunning. Just in the previous chapter, Mark chapter 3, look at this, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Does that grab you? Jesus' own family is going to grab him and keep him from teaching, and they're saying, he's, he's, just, he's just out of his mind. And then the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. What do we see here? Is this just a, a group of crazy people who are calling Jesus crazy? Because we know who he is, right? He was, a, he was the greatest teacher who ever lived. He was the son of God. So what's with this? Well, this is the condition of the human heart. This is the condition of each of us before Jesus found us. The human heart was, is in opposition to, G, to Christ, to God, to God's laws, to God's salvation. Jesus' own family, the religious leaders too. Now, no, don't, don't miss this. The religious leaders knew the law. These scribes, we were just talking this week about Ezra being a scribe and how he wrote the law and probably had the whole Genesis to Deuteronomy memorized. He was a scribe. Well, these were scribes as well. They knew the law. And yet they were blind to the truth of the law. Anyone would have been hard-pressed to find any even violation in these people's lives. But they wanted to be rid of Jesus. They satanically opposed Him. And see what they're trying to do? They're, in this context, they're trying to push His buttons. They're trying to get Him to mess up. They're trying to get him to act like the fool. They want to wreck his testimony. Just like an ungodly world wants to do with you and me today. We're being baited in our culture, in our society. We're being pushed. And one snap would discredit the incredible treasure that we have to give them. So how do we deal with what's going on in our day? Do we debate? Do we try to change people's minds? Do we argue? Do we condemn them? 
Well, Jesus demonstrates divine power. And all they have are fleshly weapons. Which seem powerful. They seem powerful. They're publicly discrediting Jesus, right? They seem powerful. In reality, they have no power at all. They hate God. They do not want to worship God, though they know He exists. They claim to worship Him and serve Him, but they hate Him. They build a fortress, as it were, around themselves to keep out the light of God. A fortress of reasoning. A fortress of legalism. A fortress of self-righteousness and pride. But let me remind you, don't be surprised when an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever. You know, sometimes we hold unbelievers to our Christian standard as if they know and as if they have the light of God within them. But don't be surprised when a sinner acts like a sinner. Because they, they're just doing what's natural. And don't forget, what God has done for you is supernatural. In opening up your heart, in putting His Word in your heart, a love for Him, a love for His Word, that's supernatural. So don't forget that. But we need to grapple afresh with depravity. And you see that in, in this context of Jesus giving these parables. Human depravity. We need to know how hard the human heart naturally is to God. It's a fearsome thing. It's a terrible thing. Look at Jesus' response. In chapter 3 again, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whoever blasphemes, blasphemies they utter, all sins, even blasphemy. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an un Jesus has an unclean spirit. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. Do you hear it in these verses? It's so magnificent. Somehow, for some reason, we immediately go down and, and try to figure out what that uh, unforgivable sin is, right? But don't miss the first line. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is what the kingdom of God was all about. Jesus came to forgive all sins. So 
what about this sin that will never against the Holy Spirit that will never has forgiveness? It is the continual and final rejection of the Spirit of God. And what does the Spirit of God do? He convicts of sin. He opens. He he. There's confrontation to the truth, and that results in this refusal of repentance. And that will justly bring God's condemnation. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, the writer of Hebrews says. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The human heart. The human heart. Jeremiah says the human heart is deceitful. (laughs) The human heart lies to the person themselves. That they are okay. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? But the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Every person who is born is building their own tower in opposition to God. Everyone is trying to build a castle to keep the gospel out. We need to understand that. We need to realize that. People aren't born basically good and just burned by their environment. And and in fact, if you just think about that statement, it's so contradictory. If people were born basically good, they would not have a bad environment. Right? There would be no bad environments to turn them. This is depravity and it's common to the hearts of humankind. And it's the problem. It's the problem. And it was the problem surrounding Jesus. It's a problem surrounding us. Even what each of us was born with. You see, we are not born good people. This is our greatest need. And in this context, Jesus tells this story, this parable about the kingdom of God. So let's look at it. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. It's a very simple, short parable. And I think it's very understandable. Especially what we know with the previous parables He told about the soils. And He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So I first want to talk about the seed. Jesus said in chapter 4, verse um, 14, He said, the sower... sows the word the sower sows the word now he's talking about that other parable he just told about the four soils but i believe the same is true in this parable the sower sows the word so the seed is the word of god the seed is the word of god jesus is illustrating how god comes to reign in a person's heart 
how he forgives, cleanses, renews to bring change. When the word of God is brought, it may seem like nothing to someone watching that nothing is happening at all. But God has ordained that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God in Romans 10.17. He also says, um, Paul says in, in Romans that chapter 1, that the, it's the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation. I want to tell you a little story. R.C. Sproul was raised in a Presbyterian church where he, he didn't hear the gospel. And uh, he wasn't, it wasn't until he was a freshman in college and he was reading Ecclesiastes 11.3. Let me read that to you. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. When he read that verse, the Holy Spirit convicted him and he just knew he was that tree lying dead. And he repented of his sins and he came to saving faith in Jesus who is the only one who can bring life. Now isn't that fantastic that God used his word to save a man, a young man in college, to convict him that he was a dead man, like that dead tree in the forest, just laying there. Can't do anything but rot. But God, through Jesus Christ, could give him new life. And he received that new life. What power! This is not normal. This is God's doing. And he uses his word to bring new life. It's also the way our minds are renewed. The Word of God fights against the wicked constructions of the heart. But you notice uh, it's the sower who's sowing the seed. So this is not a passive thing, is it? It's active. The sower has to speak the Word of God. It must be spoken. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians. For the, wep for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses or strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ. We have to play defense to the world's ideologies because they want you. They want to claim you. And our human heart goes, seems reasonable. But we cannot let it. Let them. And secondly, we must take every thought captive. We have to be on the offense. We have to play defense and we have to play offense with the Word of God. This means we must think all our thoughts from a transformed mind. We can't just let a thought dangle in our head, unrelated to what God has said in His Word. We must 
take everything to God's Word and evaluate it and submit to it. Don't be naive either. The Word of God is going to draw a reaction. It is opposed to sin. It reminds us of justice and what God has written on the hearts of men. Their conscience that is attempting to be seared. So this calls for us to know God's Word, doesn't it? Calls, calls us to love it. Love God's Word. Know it. So, Mark 4.27, He sleeps, this is the sower, He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. I call this the requirement of faithfulness. The requirement of faithfulness. And this may seem so little, and it is so little. The sower takes and he sows the seed. But that's good news, folks. It's good news. Salvation isn't up to you. The saving of souls isn't up to you. This is God's work, what God does. God tells us to sow the seed, to speak His Word. Now, if I would have put on this sweater today, I don't think any of you would have been able to hear me. <laughs> All your attention would have been on this, wouldn't it? The stain, this terrible stain. My wife said, what did you do? So there's a requirement of faithfulness. We, we can't deny the fact that when we speak into someone's life, we can't be held captive by the very sin that we're seeking to free them from. So we must take care of sin personally. We must receive Jesus' forgiveness personally. We must repent of sin personally. We must live a life that is consistent with the work of God in our lives. We dare not discredit the good news by moral failure in our daily living or even compromise, thinking that, oh, if we just, you know, the world has some really good techniques, the kingdom of darkness, they really have an audience. What if we employed some of their techniques to broaden our audience? But we can never combine the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light. We cannot stand compromise. This is God's work done in God's way. And we must have a strong conviction of that. We must know the Scripture and doctrine. So many people are, are afraid of doctrine because they say, oh, doctrine divides and we hate this division amongst Christians. Folks, we've got to know what the doctrine is of the teaching of the Word of God. We've got to embrace it and stand firm in it and not compromise. We talked already about how the sower sowed. 
But we also want to remember there's a consistent teaching throughout all of Scripture that we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. So we must do business with God ourselves. We cannot sow sin and think that we're going to reap life. No, if we sow sin, we are going to reap death. We are going to reap destruction. So we must sow what is everlasting. It is our greatest investment. The great news that can save people in their greatest need. Pornography. Homosexuals need to know there is a Savior for their sin. More sinning enslaves more. And yet they think it's freedom. And we can become convinced of that even in our own lives, can't we? But we must not believe that lie. It is not freedom. It is enslaving. And then this funny little phrase, he sleeps and he wakes. He sleeps and he wakes. The miracle of the growth isn't dependent on the sower, is it? He knows not how, in fact, our verse said. Now, farmers, Jewish farmers especially, knew God was responsible for this, this miracle of the seed becoming a plant that would bear fruit. In fact, even unbelievers, because they, we, we know the history of Israel back in, when they were in the land before the exile, and they started becoming convinced by the peoples around them that, oh, if they would sacrifice to Baal, if they would pray to Baal, maybe their crops would even be better. So even the unbeliever seeks to bow to a God, small g, to think that they'll be blessed in their crops. But just this phrase, he knows not how, reminded me of Jesus coming to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who marveled when Jesus said, you must be born again. And Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is what Jesus accomplished. And he was telling Nicodemus, he was, he was foretelling to Nicodemus, this is what I am going to do so that you may have new life. I will be lifted up on the cross. I will pay the price that your sin demands before a holy God. And if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. 
What good news. What good news. This is all the work of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty that we deserve. Our sin deserves God's judgment. And Jesus took God's judgment on the cross. That's why He died. That's why He spilled His blood. So that we could call on His name and be forgiven. The faithful sower, he goes on with life expectantly. He goes to bed, and he gets up. And what's going on in the ground seems invisible at first. But then that shoot pokes up through the soil. And it grows a stem. And then it grows a pod. Or an ear. And then fruit. The life of faith is a life of rest. The work of salvation is God's work. We don't need to be discouraged. We shouldn't be. Even in our day when we have this oppression upon righteousness, upon what is good and what is right, we should not be discouraged. Because God's work is the work of saving people. God is revealing truth in brighter clarity than we have had in decades. With this darkness that is in our land, God's truth is shining brighter than ever. It's life-changing impact that God brings to a human heart in comparison with the depravity, the compromise to cultural acceptance and shifting quicksand of today's moralities and even legalism. People thinking they are accepted by God by being good people, attending church, looking successful, standing up for oppressed people. This is all false religion that will send people to hell. The faithful sower sows and he lives a faithful, obedient, patient life expecting great things from a great God. Let's go on and look at, continue on in this parable that Jesus is teaching. The earth produce, produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I want to show you, as we see this in this ver these verses, the amazing growth. It's all the work of God. And I want you to consider the revolution that the people surrounding Jesus were totally unprepared for. For there was a, to be a revolution. A death is required to bring freedom from hated oppression. Let's see the dramatic thing that God will do in the human heart. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy 
because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him. That's the Father. Raised us up with Him, the Father, and seated us with Him, the Father, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His, the Father's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The revolution. The revolution. We don't have have it in ourselves to be transformed. In fact, you know as well as I can. Here it is, March, and where have our resolutions gone? <laughs> we, we, we can't even seem to keep our own resolutions. But we've been talking about a power that enslaves each human from birth, the power in the presence of sin. We often try to deal with the terrible effects of it instead of the root. We are often too concerned about our situation than with our sin, and that it's against a holy God. Second Corinthians 7 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We need to be made alive. We need to hate our oppressor. Have an unquenchable desire for freedom. Understand, death is unavoidable. That's why I call this part the revolution. We need to understand, death is unavoidable. And so, Jesus died. Jesus died. He died the lowest death you can die. But in doing so, He won. He won over sin, sin's power, sin's oppression, sin's enslavement, and He won over death. He conquered sin, death, and the strongholds that keep every per- that every person builds around themselves to keep God out. Jesus breaks that barrier. This is the revolution to overcome the oppression of sin and self and the devil, and it requires death. Death of one in our place. But He also demands our death. If we come to Him in faith, we must die, not a physical death, not a spiritual death, but a death to our passions. A death to that evil, wicked heart that would lead us. And we must replace, have, let God, the Spirit, 
Replace that with a heart of flesh, a heart that seeks Him, that seeks, loves His law, that loves Him. And that is through faith. So there was the required by God death of Jesus to overcome sin, but there is a death to sin that is required of everyone who receives Jesus' death in their place through faith. This death to sin leads to obedience. It's where our works are non-profitable for this achievement. Our works are non-profitable for salvation, but they are essential for one who has put his faith in Jesus Christ. They, our obedience replaces doing whatever we want, whatever feels good, whatever seems right. Instead, we subject ourselves to God's Word and God's rule in our lives. Romans 6 says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with Him in a death like His we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is the revolution that Christ has wrought. So there's the revolution and then there's the fruit. The fruit. You see the growth? First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. The fruit. And isn't that cool? The fruit is seed-bearing. And also, I don't know if you ever think like this, but the seed didn't produce just one other seed. It produced fruit with many seeds. There's a huge multiplication, isn't there? A huge exponential reproduction. And it leads to life. All other systems, the kingdom of darkness leads to death. But the kingdom of heaven leads to life. Then, there's the harvest celebration. And this is very interesting. I want, I want us to get this in Two sections. One, that because Jesus practically quotes here in this parable, Joel chapter 3, verse 13, I'll read that to you. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So, he, all through Scripture, God uses that symbolism of harvest as also a time of judgment. The time for judgment is coming. Time for harvest is coming. So there's a time for, for judgment. We must remember this. Jesus is the one who brings the sickle to the field to reap the harvest. There's a call for repentance. Judgment is coming. But don't miss this fact 
as well. That this is also a celebration. Jesus says in John 15, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So you see, even in our obedience, this is the work of God in our lives. It's a supernatural work that he's doing. Now, we want to see it faster often, don't we? We wish he would hurt, you know, that this, this, this sanctification thing would just, we would be there. We would, it would happen, that God would, would accomplish it. But he does it day by day, and that's his design. Look down at John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, what? My joy, the joy of Jesus, may be in you. And that your joy may be full. The harvest is also a celebration. Jesus is looking to have joy in you and to give you joy. As Pastor pointed out in, as he was going through Luke, in heaven, the Father rejoices when a sinner repents. Jesus' joy is in us when we abide in Him and keep His, keep His Father's commandments. And we will have joy. Wow. So the, the harvest is a celebration as we anticipate and as we experience God's changing work in our lives and in the lives of others. What a tremendous opportunity we have. So in our response this morning, I want to just wrap up with the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? When there was no way for you to access the presence of the holy, holy God, He came. He took the wrath of God. He offers a just forgiveness. A new heart that loves Him and His Word. And He sent His Spirit to dwell. He offers you Himself. He offers you Himself. And this is what He offers to our world. So you and I, we have an, an amazing privilege to share this gospel with this world that needs it so incredibly.
It's obvious to us, isn't it? And we dare not sit back on our heels and go, Oh, I wish I was somewhere else. Or I wish, I wish I lived in a different time. Or you know, God calls us and He put us in this time to share His Word and see a transformation that His Word brings about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a simple little story you told about a man who sows some seed. And he goes home and he goes to bed. And he wakes up the next day and he carries on with his work. But you do something miraculous with that seed. You bring growth. You bring life. You bring fruit. And you bring a harvest. This is all your work. The work that you have wrought in our hearts as we have put our faith and trust in you. In fact, we acknowledge that our faith even was a gift from you. Because our hearts were so wicked, so dead. You showed us that we have a Savior. And you gave us a love for him and for his word. And I pray that you would continue your transforming work in us. And Lord, may it not stop at us. May you grow your kingdom through our preaching of your word. It's so important and it's what our world needs. It's the good news that our world needs as never before. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.